thank you, Keith, for uh, praying as we uh, hold uh, this uh, time of preaching without really a, a uh, congregation. This is very strange. Uh, we are living in strange times, to say the least. And uh, I want to pray now for the sermon that the Lord would uh, bless this and uh, use it for the good of his people. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the various means that you've given to us to disseminate, to put the gospel out into uh, the world. Lord, I pray for our people here at Christ the King, and I ask, Lord, that in some way you would uh, use these sermons for their edification, Lord, during this time of social isolation due to the coronavirus. God, grant me the ability to preach in such a way that, uh, that you would uh, bless your people by the word and through the preaching. In Christ's name I pray, amen. As we draw our as we draw our attention now to John chapter three, I'll be reading from verses seventeen through twenty-one. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Amen. This entire discourse, uh, John chapter 3, verses 1 through verse 21, is really a dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus um, declaring that he knows something about Christ. And in their conversation, what Jesus does is he reveals to Nicodemus his spiritual blindness. Verses 17 through 18 that we'll focus on is, uh, of course, uh, just a piece of this entire discourse, and it deals with Nicodemus' misunderstanding of God and his misunderstanding of the gospel, his misunderstanding of God and his misunderstanding of the gospel, the good news. Many in this world today have a similar misunderstanding. God 
has a purpose in sending his son into the world. Yes, God sent his son to express his love for the world, John 3.16. And what Christ does now in verses 17 and following is show specifically God's great purpose in sending his son into the world, that sinners might be saved. So Christ says to Nicodemus, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus, in essence, says the same thing here. Negatively, he has not come to condemn the world. Positively, he affirms that the one who believes in the Son is saved. This uh, statement of Christ is related closely to verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And verse 16 is set in the context, the immediate context of verse 9. And following, where Nicodemus asks his second question, how can these things be? How can these things be? Jesus has been communicating to Nicodemus that the world is dead in trespasses and sins. And that the world needs to be brought to life. So God sent his son into the world to die for the sins of the world in order that the world might be saved through him. And of course, God sends his son from heaven. That's where Christ comes from. We're not just talking about a natural birth. So verse 13, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. Verse 31, John the Baptist says this, he who comes from above is above all. Speaking of Christ, he who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. So the Father sends his Son from heaven into the world. And the, the, the focus of Christ now, of course, is on his incarnation. Or the way that Peter describes it in First Peter, the sufferings of Christ. The scope of the passage is on the first advent and everything that is related to this advent. Look at verse 13. No one has ascended to heaven but he that came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, who is in heaven, and as Moses lifted up the serpent, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. This is what the focus is on. It's on the coming of the Son into the world to die. The first advent is the focus. So he is lifted up in verse 14. In verse 16, he is given by God. In verse 17, he is sent into the world with this grand purpose in mind that he would save sinners. Now look at the repeated word here in verse 17. And for everybody who's Calvinistically minded, I know the way that I've been speaking about the 
accomplishment of the sun. You're, you're puzzled because I keep saying world. And you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, isn't the atonement limited? What's going on here? Has COVID-19 infested, infected our pastor's brain? Well, look at verse 17. And what we have in verse 17 is three different uses of the word world. Say that five times fast. For God did not send his son into the world from heaven into the world, and there, of course, the created world, the creation. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, and there I would take fallen humanity. But that the world through him might be saved. And there you have a different use. So the first, creation, the second is fallen humanity. So I would take the entire world filled with people. But here, but that the world through him might be saved, we have the scope is narrowed. Those out of fallen humanity who would believe. And this makes perfect sense in light of verse 18. Let me just read the verse, and we will see it clearly why it's, there's a narrowing of the scope of the use world, of, of, of the word world in this passage. Look at verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. You see the narrowing there. So in verse 17, there's actually three different uses for the, world, for the word world. The creation itself, Christ comes into from heaven. Second, fallen humanity. And third, a narrowing of the use, those out of fallen humanity who would believe, believe. And he uses this language, not condemn, but that through him, might be saved. The world through him might be saved. And of course here now, context, context, context. Who is Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to Nicodemus. And what did Nicodemus and and the other Jews of his time generally believe? There were varying views, but generally the general consensus was that the Messiah would come into the world and destroy the Gentile nations and establish a Jewish theocracy. Turn with me to Psalm 2. We're not going to do an exposition of Psalm 2, but this is one of the Psalms that Nicodemus' mind might have been drawn to as he thought about the coming of the Messiah. So Psalm 2 And I'll read the entirety of the psalm. It's a short psalm. Psalm 2. Particularly in light of the terminology that Jesus is using, that he is the Son. And the Son comes into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Listen to Psalm 2. 
Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, the the Messiah, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. This is how the nations consider God and his Messiah. They want to live in rebellion. They do not want to be bound by God. He who sits in heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. When he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure, yet I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion, his king, the Messiah. I declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. This is the king, the Messiah, the son. Today I have begotten you. He is the only begotten. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, and his wrath is kindled, when his wrath is kindled, but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So the conception was that the Messiah would come and immediately judge the nations and establish the theocracy. So Jesus saying that God sends his son, the Messiah, the king, into the world, not to judge the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world, would, would have blown Nicodemus's conception of God and the gospel. It just would have blown it up entirely. We have misconceptions today. They may not be like Nicodemus's, Well, we have misconceptions about God and about the gospel. And even in the church, we have the same same misconceptions as the world because we're affected by the world. Today, he is either this angry God who's in heaven who you must appease by your penance or by your good works, or he is this passive God in heaven. And most would, wouldn't say he's passive. What they would say is he's a God of love. But really what they mean when you try to draw out from them what they're talking about is, is a God who's passive. He's not involved in any way. They have this, this uh, conception, you know, in, in their mind that uh, humanity, we're, we're the children of God. And, you know, we're just stubborn and hard-headed. And depending on what view of God they have, if, if he is the angry God, what he's constantly doing is he's punishing and he's chastising them in various ways, trying to get them to conform. Or if he's a passive God, he's going to give us everything that we want to satisfy us when we throw a tantrum. No. No to both of these views. That God is righteous and holy is clear. And that he is merciful and compassionate is clear in the Bible. 
So in Exodus chapter 34, when God is declaring his own name to Moses, he says, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Yes, God is a God of love. And at the cross, in the coming of his son, his love is displayed to the grandest and greatest magnitude. Because all sinners, any sinner, can come to Christ and be forgiven for their sins, past, present, and future. At the cross, Christ bore all of the sin of all of his people. God's mercy and love is displayed there, yet by no means clearing the guilty. God's righteousness does not fold because of the cross, but it stands because at the cross what God is showing is that he is just. He comes and punishes sin at the cross. God is holy. He is merciful. He's not some angry ogre ogre in heaven or some old passive grandfather figure who does whatever he needs to to appease his stubborn children. No, he is righteous. And he calls all men everywhere to repent, to repent. Back at John chapter 3, and Jesus says that he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And this language of condemn, the word itself, um, can have a nuanced meaning. Actually, in the New Testament, there are various words that are used sort of as synonyms, there's overlapping meaning. But in essence, the nuance that relates closest to what Christ is trying to communicate here is either rendering a legal verdict or the process of legal condemnation. Let me illustrate uh, the point this way. So on the one hand, you have someone who is standing before the judge, let's say, for murder, and he is found guilty, and the judge passes the legal verdict. You are guilty. On the other hand, you have the execution of judgment. The judgment has not been executed yet when he's found guilty. He's just been sentenced. And then in time, the judgment is executed, let's say, the death penalty, which is biblical and just. So, so Christ, when he uses this language, think there's a nuance, but primarily what he has in mind is passing sentence. What he's saying is, I did not come into the world to pass the sentence guilty. That's not why I came. Note the antonym. Antonym. So he says that 
God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. A better way to translate that when when we hear this, might be saved, when we are told that God sent his son into the world that the world might be saved, what it means really is should be saved through him. One translation actually puts it that way, but that the world should be saved through him. And the emphasis really is not on a mere probability of being saved, but that he is the only savior. And that the nature of that salvation he gives is eternal. He saves to the uttermost. Look at verse 15. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Look at verse 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God, it abides on him. And there in verse 36, we see the, uh, some synonyms for what Jesus is talking about in verses 17 and 18. The wrath of God abiding on the person doesn't necessarily mean the execution of judgment. It's the sentence. They are prepared for destruction, as it were. Jesus is saying that there is a legal judgment upon those who do not believe that will be executed at his second coming. That's the focus of 3.36. Paul says it a bit differently. Speaking about Christians, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this. In Ephesians chapter 2, speaking about Christians before their conversion, in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, Paul says this. And he made, he, and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted our lives in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the other. Children of wrath. There is a sentence placed upon them. And what Jesus is saying is, I did not come. That wasn't the purpose of God sending me into the world. He says it clearly here. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved that Christ will condemn unbelievers by execution of that legal judgment that they deserve at his second coming is clear in Scripture. There's no black, it's black and white. There's no gray area. There's no possibility what Christ might not know. That's not the point of this text. The point is highlighting The love of God, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. So the sending of the son is a display of God's love. And the purpose of the coming of the son into the world 
is the salvation of men, not their condemnation. So, uh, I want to go back to this point, though, with regards to the judgment. Christ will condemn unbelievers. In Matthew 25, verses 31 through 33, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. And then in verse 46, and these, the goats, will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So as you're thinking about this verse, here's the view Right? It clear, let's clear up the, the, the miscon, misconception. Christ came into the world to save. Would you like to escape the fear of death? God's purpose in Christ was to deliver his people from this very fear. In Hebrews twelve fifteen, the author there writes that Christ came to release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. This, this great fear that keeps you from doing anything because you're afraid that one day you might die. You lie down in your bed and you, you try to go to sleep and your, your mind is just running and you think not only of your own death but maybe the death of your spouse and the death of your children and the death of your friends and the death of your family and there's this constant fear. Do not hesitate to believe in Christ. He offers eternal life. All who are weary and are heavy laden are invited to come to him. Don't be eaten up or beaten down by anxiety. Christ has overcome the world. He said, I have not come into the world to judge the world. Yet this should not make us lazy or abuse God's mercy. We shouldn't give ourselves over to sin. We shouldn't give ourselves over to worry. We shouldn't give ourselves over to fear. In his first coming, he didn't come to judge. He came to forgive. He came to save. Yet remember, as John Chrysostom puts it, he will come to judge a second time, and not to forgive. Or maybe you've tried seeking God, quote, unquote, and not found him. Maybe you are frantic in your prayers. You're bound by some sin. You're shut up to it. You're in darkness and everything is dim and there, there does not seem to be a way for you to escape. Look, during these times when people are isolated in their homes, you would, you would, maybe you would think that most people would thrive spiritually because they're disconnected from the world. But they're actually locked in their homes with their greatest enemy, themselves. 
What, what, are you, what, what should you do? Look to Jesus. Look because he was given by the Father to save, not to condemn. If that's where you are, you are frantic and shut up in sin. Look to the Son. Yes, you are unworthy. You are worthy of condemnation. But Christ offered, was offered, so that you would not be condemned. That's what you ought to look to. We're not to look to ourselves, to our own sufficiency, but to the sufficiency of Christ. We are to look to his perfect life. We have nothing to offer God, nothing at all. But he is of an infinite worth, and he is offered for us. Are you unwilling to go to the judgment? Are you unwilling? Do you live in fear of that day? Do you live in constant fear even now that if you were to stand before God, you would be judged unrighteous? Christ was willing. He came to do the Father's will. He set his face like a flint. He despised the shame of the cross because he was willing to do the Father's will. Are you unholy and blemished, unfit to stand in the presence of God? Christ is holy, sinless, undefiled, a fit and fitting sacrifice, acceptable to the Father as a sweet-smelling aroma. Look to Christ. You cannot endure the great day of judgment. You can't. Yet he was put to shame. He was slaughtered. He was crushed under the weight of the eternal wrath of God and rose victorious over the grave. Believe in him as he has offered to you in this book, in this book here, the Bible. Believe in Christ. He did not come into the world to condemn. He came into the world to save, to save Christ continues, he says, he who believes in him, in the Son, is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. He was using this language, right, of of world. He used it three times, as I said in verse 17. He came into the world. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came that the world might be saved through him. And remember that I said that that third use in John narrows the scope? Jesus does this here now with his language. He who believes. There is a condemnation now. Do you see it in this verse? But he who does not believe is condemned already now. But first, believers are not condemned And he uses very exclusive and individual language. It's no longer this global language of world. It's not that anymore. Now it's a very limited, it's it's exclusive and individual language. He who believes. Second, unbelievers are condemned now. 
for not believing. He who believes and he who does not believe. Exclusive and individual language. Either you believe in him or you don't. There's no middle ground. And here's another great misunderstanding. You come to verses like John 3.16. Maybe you read up to verse 17. And you have this idea in your mind. You think God loves the world. I'm in the world. Jesus died for the world. So I'm okay. So God loves me. I'm okay with God. I'm okay with Jesus. No, no, friend. Jesus elsewhere speaks. He speaks in this way. In Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate. And broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in it. Because narrow, the reason why many go into that gate is because the, the, the real gate, the gate to heaven, is narrow. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. You are on one, either one path or the other. You see, although Jesus uses this universal language, he says that he came into the world, he didn't come to condemn the world, but that, he, that, but that all that might believe in him, or all should, let me read it, but that the world through him might be saved, he has in view those who would believe in him. Out of that mass of fallen humanity, you know, that's kind of the Arminian language, right? Out of that mass of fallen humanity, there are some who are called. There are some who find that narrow gate. And he was using that expansive language, really, to confront Nicodemus with his misunderstandings of God and of the gospel. But now he's bringing it home to Nicodemus, Yes, the Messiah comes to save out of those men and women who are bound in sin from every tribe, tongue, and nation, those who believe in him. But have you believed in him? You are either on that path, you've entered that narrow gate, or you haven't. Jesus gives no false security here. There is no reason in the world to come to these verses and have some, some, some universalistic or inclusivistic view of Christianity. Everybody's getting in different paths up the same mountain. There's none of that here. None of that. You believe or you don't. You have life. You are born from above. You are washed through regeneration, you're renewed by the Spirit, or you are condemned, you are a child of wrath, prepare for judgment. You see, the reason for his first coming wasn't judgment, but it is a consequence of his coming. We are judged if we reject, if we reject God's way of salvation. 
Listen to the way Jesus puts it in John 9. In John chapter 9, verses 39 through 41, Jesus says this. John 9, 39 through 41. For judgment I have come into this world. And he's speaking now to the Pharisees after he's healed this man of his blindness, and the Pharisees are just livid. They refuse to believe that Jesus has done this by God's hand. It's because they're envious, they're they're evil and hard-hearted towards him. But um, for judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see. Therefore, your sin remains. The Pharisees, dead in trespasses and sins, were saying to Jesus, No, we know the way to God. And you are not it. And Jesus was saying to them, oh, you are, you are dead in trespasses and sins. If you think you know how to get to heaven better than the son who was sent from heaven, you're doomed to hell. When you reject Christ as the remedy, Calvin wrote, You deserve to find him the judge and avenger of contempt so unworthy and base. Let me illustrate the point, right? So I say there's a fire in your home or some emergency in your home, and you have to get out, and you're not well-dressed. You don't want to go outside to be judged by onlookers, so you stay inside, I'm not going to go outside. I, you know, I'm, I'm you know, not dressed the way that I would like to be. So you stay inside. And let's say there was a window, right? You could jump out, you know, you jump out this window, but now you're outside dressed in a way that, uh, you know, you don't want people to see you dressed. So you reject the way of salvation. What happens? The onlookers don't judge, right? There's no judgment out there. There's no judgment. But the fire does judge. You reject the way to life for whatever reason. If you reject the way of life, for whatever reason you reject it, all that is left for you is judgment. So Christ doesn't come into the world actively to judge, but as a consequence of his coming, when men refuse to believe in him, they're condemned already. And that's an important condemned already. We'll look, that in a, we'll look at that in a second. Paul puts this point that we're addressing now this way. Paul and Barnabas, they're uh, preaching the gospel. And of course, Paul's motto was to the Jew first. And in Acts chapter 13, verse 46, he comes and the Jews reject the way of salvation. And Paul and Barnabas say, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. That's what these people were doing when Christ came into the world. 
When they refused him, what they were doing was they were judging themselves unworthy of eternal life. Therefore, they were condemned. And here's the reason, right? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. And as I said, Jesus says, condemned already. The world that Christ entered and the world in which we live, the world in which he was offered to men and he is still offered to men today, is under a curse. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and sin and death spread to all men. Jesus didn't come into a world where there was an elect class that was sinless and was waiting for him, that was uh, not blind. That's not the case. They were all blind. God's word from its opening chapters reveals this to us. The, the word itself, the Bible, is given to expose the corruption of our hearts. And even our conscience itself bears witness that we are not right with God. Look, you could do whatever you want. Transcendental meditation, take a bunch of, you know, uppers, downers, go to a psychologist, you know, whatever. Whatever it is you want to do. The, the reason why men go to every corner of the world to try to seek some remedy is because their conscience is crying out, I'm not right with somebody. And it's not only my neighbor. Here's another great misunderstanding of the gospel and of God. Humanity has sought a cure for their malady everywhere by means of idolatry, science, looking into the self, even corrupting the scriptures and the doctrines of scripture. So, you know, um, people will look to every other religion besides the Bible. They'll look for cures in Islam their malady and, and, and what does Muhammad say to them what does Allah say to them in that book he says to them work your way to heaven or paradise and that's every other religion besides Christianity because only Christ was offered to be the savior of the world to deal with man's problem, to deal with man's sin. And then you have people who will take the Bible and, you know, they like some of it. So yes, we believe the Bible, but it's full of errors that are contrary to evolution and science. And so the thinking man, man must, you know, he must examine these errors and weigh them and accept what he wants from the Bible and then put aside, you know, old, archaic, mumbo-jumbo nonsense that's in there. You are not believing in the name of the Son of God when you do that. Jesus said in John 10, 35, the scripture cannot be broken. In other words, this book, as Calvin said, 
is inviolable. Or, yes, I believe the Bible, but there are other ways to heaven. Another way that people might say this is, it's truth for me. You know, this is truth for me. This is, I get comfort from this. But hey, you know, my neighbor, she's got a statue of Buddha and she goes out there and she sings to this thing and, you know, twists herself like a pretzel in front of it and it makes her feel really good and that's her truth. There is no other name under heaven by which men might be saved. You are not believing in the name of the Son of God if you've taken up this error. You remain under the sentence that was passed in the garden. God said, if you eat of the tree, you will surely die. And Adam did die. He died spiritually. And every person that was born from Adam and Eve, which is every person on this planet, every person who's ever lived, that's where you find your beginning, is born under the curse. There is a condemnation. Death rules and reigns. There is no security of eternal life. There is only judgment and condemnation. And then finally, for the unbeliever, the one who dies in sin, who dies in penitent, there is eternal wrath. You must believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Not unique Son. If your Bible says that, you've got a bad translation. It's only begotten. It's speaking of eternal relations between the Father, God the Father, and God the Son. He is begotten, not made, God of God. What does he mean here by this, the name of the only Son? We use similar language uh, when we speak of, let's say we're we're talking about a doctor. He has a good name in the area of healing whatever, or a mechanic. He's got a good name for, uh, you know, fixing transmissions or working on brakes or whatever it is. And what we're saying is that the work, right, that you need accomplished by this person or you need some work accomplished, here is the person to do it, right? Because of their accomplishments, because of their abilities, the work that must be accomplished on our behalf was accomplished by Christ. Jesus is the, all, the only and all-sufficient Savior. That's what we need. We must commit the care of our soul to him, Trust and hope in him alone for eternal salvation. The point that Jesus is driving home here when he speaks to Nicodemus is that we must believe in his name to be saved. He was offered to the world as the savior of the world. All who believe in him are saved. All who do not are condemned and they are condemned already. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity of uh, being able to record this message, Lord, and I pray that you would use it for the edification of your people. In Christ's name I pray, amen.